The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. Ask anyone who's been my guest on the business of biotech, and they'll tell you that it takes more than a novel molecule to build a biotech, a lot more. Intellia Therapeutics president and CEO, Dr. John Leonard, certainly knows it. At his core, he's a molecule guy, did his postdoc in molecular virology, and spent the formative years of his career in R&D. But he's also a business builder, and he's learned that it takes a community of diverse resources an ecosystem, if you will, to build a successful biotech. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech. And on today's show, we're sitting down with Dr. Leonard for a discussion on the building blocks of biotech, building blocks that reach well beyond the four walls of the business. Dr. Leonard, welcome to the show. Great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. This uh, When this idea, the conversation idea was thrown my way, I thought, man, I've, I've been excited for this one for a while because I think it's a, it's a great, great topic and it's super timely right now. We're at sort of an inflection point in the way that we do business. I mean, you know, well, I, I should say a few years into an inflection point in the way we do yeah. business. And I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I've got lots of questions for you about how that inflection point has impacted specifically the biotech business. And we'll get into that, but I want to start with a little bit of you right to kind of get get your perspective get some context as to you know where you come from and what you bring to this conversation um and and that starts with you know when i look at your cv i see r&d 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 svp pharmaceutical r&d at abbott svp global pharmaceutical r&d at abv uh before that and beyond um and then you've got this md in molecular molecular virology uh back in the 80s not to date you there's a little bit of <laughs> you just did, of, but that's <laughs> I did too, uh, blatantly. There's a little bit of a gap there. I'm curious about, like when you came out of academia, you know, pretty prestigious uh, a- academic experience. Um, then there's a bit of a gap before you you joined industry, at least date wise. So I'm just curious, like what you were doing then, what what sort of filled that? that yeah, spot? it's uh, <clears throat> there's there's really no gaps. Everything. Uh, led directly into the next thing. I uh, went to medical school in the early 80s. I graduated in 1983, so there's a date for you. Um, You've officially, yeah, made it official and dated. Very, very official. But it's an important date because at that time, uh, the AIDS epidemic was just beginning. In fact, when I was in medical school, some of those very first case reports came out. So I was in medical school uh, <clears throat> on the East Coast at, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, uh, which really was not the epicenter of AIDS. And mm-hmm. in fact, when you know, I was doing my basic medical training, or just uh, you know maybe a few hundred case reports in the literature, and it, it wasn't called AIDS even at that time. I mean, it was a, a condition that had been noted. Uh, when I graduated from medical school, I went to the West Coast. I, was at, I did my medical internship and residency at Stanford. And at that time, we rotated through as interns, uh, San Francisco General Hospital. So 
in in the few years between uh, you know uh, just beginning my ward work and actually you know being an intern, uh, the AIDS epidemic had exploded. And at San Francisco General Hospital, they actually had an AIDS ward. So when I got there as an intern, uh, you know the disease now had a name. Uh, the numbers were skyrocketing, and in a place like San Francisco, which was certainly one of the epicenters. It, it was inescapable. And it's really that experience, I think, that uh, in many, many ways influenced my ultimate career and career choices. Uh, because while there, um, <laughs> you know, you, you see a new condition appear that, you know, just a few years ago, nobody knew about. Uh, you see a condition for which we don't know what the cause is. And if we don't know what the cause is, we have very few uh, means to actually treat it, certainly not the disease itself. And so it was one of these things where I'm starting out my medical training and immediately you're at the end of the pharmacopoeia, so to speak. It's just yeah. like, where do these things come from? How do they happen? Uh, where does medicine come from? Which really, you know, I'd, I'd say started my uh you know, initial thinking that maybe I would do something other than, you know, traditional medicine. Hmm. And, you know, maybe the gap you're referring to is after my uh, internship and residency, I wanted to get more molecular because I just, it just seemed that <laughs> if you're going to understand, understand the, the answer to some of these questions or at least how to address them, I needed to have something other than just my medical training. So, I went to the NIH, uh, and that was 86 to 89, and worked in a laboratory that happened to be one of the two AIDS uh, labs at that time at, at, at the NIH. And, you know, you abandoned the clinical thinking because that's just not part of what that work is. Mm -hmm. And you're surrounded as a physician by PhDs immersed in a world that was quite different from, you know, the medical training that I'd have. And that, I would say that was sort of the dividing point for me as to whether I would go and be sort of a standard academic clinician or, you know, be in a position to, uh, uh, you know, continue a line of research that ultimately is what I, what I did. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so was it, I mean, what was it that point in time, sort of that, the, the, the AIDS influence, that moved you like prior to that, I should say prior to that, were you intending to be sort of the traditional academic cl clinician? You know, I was, I was interested in clinical medicine. Um, I, I enjoyed learning about it. I learned a lot from my patients. Um, you know, when we were in a position where you could actually make a difference that I was, was rewarding in its own way. And I like the process of, you know, trying to figure out diagnostically what's going on and, and, and then intervening. But um, I think I was so influenced by, you know, that experience with, with AIDS, um, along with, I guess, um, well, at Stanford, it's a, you know, at that time, it was a tertiary referral center for oncology. And, you know, a lot's happened in these last 40 years. <laughs> so mm -hmm. at that time, it was in, in many respects similar to, you know, HIV infection. Just we, we had some ideas, but the, you know, the details and the uh, granularity of our understanding was just really beginning to be what it is. So 
I became just really interested in going beyond recognizing the disease and trying to intervene and, and peering more deeply, I guess is a way of saying it, into what the disease process was and finding other ways to actually, you know, intervene at the source. And, you know, as, as I was at the NIH and I got more deeply into, uh, you know, the strictly research approach, I realized that it was going to be very hard for me to go and, and do uh, clinical work and research at the level that I was hoping to do it uh, in what was available to me at that time. So I decided to embark on a career in industry, which I realized while I was uh, at the NIH is where most of the drugs came from. And I wanted yeah. to be a part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. And what, I, you know, so your, your experience in R&D speaks for itself. I mean, you had a long storied career with some big companies in, in R&D, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, you know, I, I, I could spend the next 45 minutes talking with you about that. In fact, I'm, I'm going to go on public blast. I'm going to put you on blast publicly right now. We have a, uh, we're, we're doing an R&D, <laughs> a, a bioprocess online live event in January on R&D. Uh, I'm going to publicly invite you right now to be a panelist on that uh, on that event. I'll follow up with your PR team on that. I'll have my people talk to your people. That, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, but we're going to skip. We're going to, for, for the, for the intents of this, this uh, conversation, we're going to fast forward. All right. So, you know, you did a bunch of R&D work at, at Abbott and AbbVie. Um, in, we're going to fast forward all the way to 2014 and start talking about your, your uh, leadership and, and building Mentelia. You joined the board there in 2014. And uh, and took on a role that was familiar to you again in R and D, EVP of R and D, uh, before assuming the head post there just just a few years later. Um, so I guess before we get off the R and D train completely, I'm I'm curious about how your experience, your long experience in that realm, influenced uh, your role in the in the C suite. You know, as as the as the leader at Intelia. Yeah, it's I, I had been at Abbott for Abbott AbV for 22 years, and <clears throat> I was in the R and D organization, and I led it for a third of the at that time. Um, when I uh, stepped out of AbV, uh, I, I did not plan on, you know, recapitulating my career, having some operational role. Um, and had been asked if I'd be willing to, you know, provide some advice and uh, thinking with respect to where, you know, CRISPR technology might go, you know, in terms of putting a company together. So I agreed to think about that, you know, from a strategic point of view, it's the, you know, it's the difference between the cool molecular biology that had uh, been reported and actually making a product and having it be relevant for patients. And, um, I was not uh, certainly a CRISPR scientist, but I did have a lot of experience thinking about what matters for patients and how to get technology there. So uh, that's why I tried to help, you know, think, thinking down the road as to where you know, this work could be applied and where it could take us. And ultimately, uh, well, you're right, I was on the board. They had this advisory role. I ultimately came into the company to actually help with some of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that's a good place to start talking about sort of these building, these big foundational building blocks of building a biotech and, and 
and beyond, right? Building a biotech hub, building a an industry, if you will, an ecosystem around a a, a, a technology. Um, well, I mean, technology is one of those those foundational elements. So I, I want to, I guess, get your sense of how how fundamental CRISPR in this case is in terms of like being one of the foundational elements necessary to building momentum, not just within a company, but within uh, an ecosystem or a region or a, you know, quote unquote, biotech hub, however you might define that. Like, it, w- would, would you say that something new to grab onto, you know, 30 years ago, monoclonal antibodies were, were, were kind of a, you know, a, a, a corollary? You know, it's interesting uh, the way you ask the question. Um, <clears throat> in, in, a, in a muddled way, it's an interesting. <laughs> no, no I, I wasn't thinking about that, but I, I had occasion to give a talk recently in Chicago. Um, you know, Abbott's there, and I have many ties to the area about building, you know, a biotech hub and what it takes. And so um, as I thought about what to you know, tell that group. I went and I looked at the the history of the Boston uh, Cambridge Biotech Hub, mm. and it was really interesting. It, you know, it's it's what what I saw, at least what I took away from the history that I was able to glean, um, was in, in at least in the case of Boston. I think it's also true in the the Bay Area, where uh, there was a new technology. This is um, recombinant DNA. And, you know, the pharma industry at that time was largely staffed by chemists, uh, much more so than microbiologists. And uh, some of the true innovators were academicians who had proficiency with, with this new approach and believed that you could go and use it to think about, you know, making medicine. And in, in the early days, it was very much about cloning genes, you know, insulin and clotting factors and you know, things that growth hormone, for example, things that were missing from uh, certain disease states. And so I think there's certainly precedence where a technology, a major advance can serve as the basis for a burst of innovation and depending who does that <clears throat> and where that takes place, you can imagine, uh, as was, I think, the case in both the Bay Area and Boston, that serving as the kind of the night is for something new happening. And then all of the kind of attendant related sort of technologies uh, spring up around it. I think now with CRISPR, um, you know, I, I, I see uh, it's certainly having the same sort of impact, uh, but but I don't see it so far, at least, driving new biotech hubs. I, I see it, you know, uh, sort of nesting, if you will, in the established hubs and drawing from these other technologies that have grown up around, you know, uh, you know, molecular biology and genomics and delivery modalities, gene-based medicine, et cetera, and enabling uh, CRISPR in a way that um, would not have been possible many, many years ago. So, do you think that's a product of of the the portability of of information and and I guess the portability of of people uh, now compared to perhaps uh, back when Boston and, and the Bay Area were starting think, to burgeon? Well, I no, 
if I understand your question, I, I'd say um, it, it, imagine that CRISPR had uh, appeared 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been a fascinating technology that my guess is would have you know, spent a lot of time in the laboratory and a lot less time as it's doing now headed toward the, the clinic and patients, et cetera, because there were a whole set of other things that needed to happen, that, that, that needed to exist when CRISPR came along to be able to be you know, applied technology for the making of medicine. And when I think about that, it's, okay, you got to have a basic understanding of genomics. I mean, the human genome worked out. The ability to uh, get large-scale genomic information very, very fast and efficiently when you think about these studies that we do to determine where the CRISPR goes, how it behaves, the specificity of it. If we were sequencing DNA today the way that we did 40 years ago, it would be prohibitively expensive and, and incredibly slow. Delivery technologies that uh, have only evolved in the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so needed to be there for CRISPR to be relevant. So, you know, it's different from, you know, recombinant DNA when it was the idea you could splice a piece of DNA into another piece of DNA in a very specific way. Here, the ability to, you know, go into the genome, change a particular nucleotide in some part of the body uh, just requires all of these other things to exist that have evolved and come to be uh, over the you know the course of these last 30, 40 years. So it's like a lot of things, you know, uh, there's certain things that are ahead of their time and there are certain things that, you know, come into being when, you know, the time is right and take off and, and are successful. And I think that's certainly been the case here. You don't, I, I, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, CRISPR, you know, to your question about biotech hubs, benefits from the existence of the already present hubs and the technology that they've built up that yeah. can be applied. Yeah, and that, that tech, the technology that they've built up, and I'm also assuming the the, the research re- resource. Uh, so t- talk a little bit about that. Like, you know, if I'm in Boise, uh, take CRISPR out of the equation. I'm in Boise. I, I discover a novel molecule and I'm like, okay, cool. I got something I want to build, right? Like I want to build something around this. Um, I need some, I need some intellect. I need some people. I need some reach research capacity, right? Like, and it, it's not handy, <laughs> right? So like how, how, how important is that, uh, is that Boston like physical and IP infrastructure? It's, you know, it's it's a really interesting question because there are a lot of cities right now that see the success that uh, certainly has played out here in Boston or in, in the Bay Area to a certain extent and Research Triangle and San Diego and you know, places like that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my my home state in there real quick, John. Uh, so Philadelphia wants to stake its claim right now as a as a selling you know, an ATMP hub, and they're doing a great job, you know. But but simil- similarly, you know, similarly, Philly has resources like Penn and a great a great healthcare network, a great you know, Chop. They got a great hospital system down there. So like similarly, I just, you know, 
they're um, you know they're 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 aided by a, by a pretty good uh, extended network or infrastructure. Yeah, that was an unintended omission. I mean, absolutely, that's, that's certainly the case. You know, I, I would say this: you can do it almost anywhere, um, but it gets progressively harder as you move away from places where. Uh, the skill sets are resident in, call it, abundant quantities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I th- actually, I think the pen is, uh, example you gave is a really excellent one where they are leading, in many respects, the whole CAR-T revolution. It came from, you know, Carl June and, and a group there that uh, came up with an idea that uh, played it out and it, it spread from there as it was picked up in other areas. So it's like, well, what are the critical elements? Um, you need an insight, you know. Um, you need uh, people who can come and work on that. Uh, you can be virtual up to an extent, but depending on how, you know, large the undertaking is and how far you want to go, I think uh, virtual organizations have many, many limitations. You need to have a source of funding. And... You know, money is uh, certainly portable, uh, although it tends to reside preferentially in certain areas where you know, venture groups, et cetera, set up and have access to, uh, you know, individuals and institutions, et cetera. But it's portable. But I think really one of the key things is an entrepreneur, you know, somebody who's driven to make something happen, who's got a notion of what's possible and ideally, um, there are exceptions, but ideally the experience to go and understand what it takes to make something happen. I mean, you can have a lot of inspired people who want to go change the world, whatever. Yeah. But if you don't have, you know, some experience or can't, if you can't partner, partner with somebody who does, you can make a lot of mistakes, waste a lot of money, waste a lot of time and lose the enthusiasm or the support of the people with the money <laughs> that you yeah. need to make this stuff work. So, you know, I, I, I think um, biotech is in the early days, you know, very much uh, a local phenomenon, uh, but um, it is far more portable as the number of people who have, you know, uh, played in the area and gained experience uh, grows. And so, you know, for the, that entrepreneur in Boise, uh, and for all I know, there are companies. I, I, I haven't looked into the biotech environment. I don't know. It's the, it, was the, it was the first, like, remote-sounding city that popped into my right. head. So and, and a fine unintentional. City, you know, and I'm sure somebody wants to do it. And, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I just say it's harder than in other places. Yeah. E- even in places where uh, – places like Boston and Philadelphia and the Bay Area that are flush with – with, with intellect and research capacity. <clears throat> Some of these newer technologies, like, I mean, you know, you talk about the early days recombinant DNA in Boston, you know, CRISPR now, there are multiple, you know, ATMPs where they're being developed right now that uh, perhaps require or could benefit from skill sets that aren't even fully developed at MIT. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. I want to, I want to kind of get your sense, like as you've built Intelia, you know, as you, and as you've, as you've um, dug deeper into some, some technology that's, that's new, some stuff that's not been seen before. Mm-hmm. 
how, how do you, how do you develop that talent? Like how do how do you make, how do you ensure that you've got people who you, you mentioned, you said earlier, you've got to have people who can work on that specific research or that specific, but there, in some cases, I, I want to say that there's people who, it, it might be more important to have people who want to, like maybe aren't trained to, but want to, would you say that's true? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, by its nature, innovation means doing something new. <laughs> and uh, if you're doing true innovation, uh, you're going to be doing a lot of new stuff. In almost all cases, building on things we know, uh, drawing from uh, you know experiences we've had, et cetera, uh, but trying to you know channel that in a way that accomplishes something that hasn't been you know done before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's not it's 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 not like, you know, uh, some quantum theorist looking at the world for the first time and coming up with just a novel way of seeing things that feels like a departure from where we've been. Oh, so you're 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 letting you're opening the curtain up on this Wizard of Oz like perception that so so many people. Well, have. yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I I do think when when I talk to people that I know who are not technical people but you know friends and, and colleagues that's from other things, uh, when I talk about what we do. It, it, it very quickly becomes, you know, a black box for them or, you know, in in the most, you know, uh, you know, extraordinary sense, probably magic. You know, I mean, it's like with high yeah. expectations, no less. You know, that's that's the thing of it. Right. Like the black box is the black box. But but there's such there's such high expectation. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I'll, I'll stick with the magic thing for a minute because it's it's. I don't mean to sound, um, you know, uh, I don't know what proper word is, you know, like devoid of you know reality or anything like that. But for when you're talking to a person who doesn't understand some of the basic scientific aspects of what we do. When, you know, if people who live in, in the world of, of science understands one thing leads to the next and, you know, something's derivative of the other and the related, et cetera. But if you've never thought deeply about that and you're having a conversation with somebody who's working on your house, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, uh, who hasn't may not have thought about this previously and you, you describe that you're going to go into a person's body into cells of their name, the organ of your choice, find a particular gene and change some atoms in that gene. So that gene behaves differently. They, they are either swept up in, this is extraordinary. This is, you know, tell me more, or it just, it does not compute. It, it just don't have the mm-hmm. technical uh, wherewithal to really understand what what that means, and it can be very frightening. It can be very uh, alarming, or you know, it just depends on you know sure. <laughs> where one starts with all this stuff. Yeah, but uh, 
Yeah. We, we went on a, we, we chased a, we went down a rabbit hole there, chased the new shiny moment. But <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> what, what prompted that question was sort of my challenge that uh, when, when you're entering into a new research area, curiosity, just as much as you know, curiosity of the, of the scientific mind, just as much as knowledge, right? Like uh, a skill set in that particular technology uh, might drive progress and and you were you know you were beginning to explain that that's it's not necessarily you know the uh as you said um uh, it's not not magic right exactly i mean and that's you know back to the, the the notion of experience i mean it's it's knowing how to pose questions mm-hmm. and what questions are important and how to set up an experiment that is interpretable that you know builds on the knowledge you have and it really comes down to you know, some of the new tools that we have <clears throat> the ability to pose different questions and and do it in a way that is, uh, you know, meaningful from the standpoint of a product that ultimately, you know, one hopes to make. And so, so that's where I say the experience matters. I mean, it's, it's one thing to you get your PhD and say, CRISPR, wouldn't it be cool? We could do X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. Uh, but if you intend to actually make that X, Y, and Z thing, that product, there's a process that one goes through and you need to know how to, you know, uh, build the basis of understanding what the experimental, you know, tools and processes are to actually get to what you um, want to achieve. And it's uh, experienced scientists who may be coming from other areas uh, that are somewhere related will understand how to do that and, and they will get you there faster. They will um, do it in a way that has fewer zigs and zags. And ideally, they'll do it in a way that is robust. And I, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So here at the company, um, as, as we've grown, we, we've brought in folks who have extensive experience leading groups, leading scientists who have, you know, these individuals have done things, different systems, you know, but they understand how to carry out that research process. So you can take the enthusiast, you know, the the new scientist Mm -hmm. and have that individual be very, very productive. And it's it's certainly played out, you know, in in our work in the clinic thus far. Yeah. Is there competition for those folks? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, you know it, it, things have cooled off a little bit in the last uh, year, year and a half, related yeah. to things going in the market out there. But uh, for I'd say three years or so, there was intense competition for people who uh, have delivery technology, who have uh, you know basic insights into. You know, bioinformatics, which is core to what we do here. People with experience with uh, nucleotide chemistry, et cetera. Everybody needs those people because there's so many different related efforts that uh, draw on those expertises uh, that, you know, are playing playing out in companies uh, around the country. Yeah. How, how do you um, how do you keep how do you get them and keep them? Well, <laughs> one hopes that uh, the mission, the culture, et cetera, is really 
inspiring and, and one where a scientist, when he or she encounters that, feels like they can live a life of science uh, in, in, in our organization. So it's not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. You have to be competitive with that, of course. Mm-hmm. But you, we, we try really hard uh, to create an environment where people feel very connected to each other. Uh, uh, they understand how the science comes together, irrespective of the particular piece that they may do that may be, you know, 10 steps away from, you know, somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and then we try very hard to connect them to the patient in the end so they understand what this all adds up to and the difference that it can make. You mentioned... Uh you mentioned capital, you mentioned, you know, fi- finance, money being uh, a foundational element. And you also mentioned that things have cooled off recently, uh, as we're all aware. Um, so uh, from your purview, right, like if, you, if you're if you looking at the ecosystem, the, the, the people, the research, the intellect, the, the you know, the, the, the region, the resources that it takes to create uh, a biotech community, um, finance being one of those resources when when any one of these resources is not working right as a biotech builder you ask yourself why and how do we fix that right i mean i, I guess fundamentally like you think well why isn't that working right why don't i have that resource why don't i have the you know whether it's intellect people money whatever um so yeah so so yeah basic question like what's wrong with the with the market right now and, and, and how do we fix it? It's a basic but big question, but I'm interested in your perspective. Yeah, it's uh... just a, one more real quick piece of context. Uh, I, you know, I, I have conversations. We, we, we drop 52 episodes uh, a year. I, I have conversations week in and week out with biotech execs um, in, in the past three years since we launched this podcast. Like I've seen the growth of the technology and the tools just in the past three years, incremental, like it's, it's, it's incredible. Right. The, the growth, like there's no, I don't, I don't think there's a time in, I, I'm not going to say that because I'm, I don't have the history, but, I, but I would venture, I would challenge. I would, I think I would say it's arguable that there's been, you know, no time in history uh, prior to this, where the technology and the science have come together to the point where we have tools like we do today. And yet, you know, despite that advance and that promise, people are having a really hard time getting money and they're putting programs on on shelves and backburnering things yeah. that have great promise for patients because they can't fund them. What's going on? Well, first of all, I think most people would agree with you about the tools and insights comments that you made. I mean, it is unique, you know, and, and this is unprecedented, the things that we can do. And, and there's a lot of different people trying to do a lot of different things, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if one's setting up a company, uh, you, you're, you're trying to get to a future that uh, any investor will look for as uh, coming with a payoff of some sort, a return on that investment. And, it's true whether you're in a big company, you know, that has revenues and you're making decisions about how to, you know, uh, set up the various programs that you can work on there. Or if you're s- starting out with a new company and you have a new technology and you're going to try to solve a problem. Um, if one lives in 
the pre-commercial space, like here at Intelia, meaning that there's no products at this company that produce revenues. Then, you know, in some respects, it's a, it's a simple economic exercise where you say, okay, well, what is that future? What might it be? What might it be worth? And as the economic circumstances change in the world, interest rates going up, um, more economic uncertainty, you know, related to macroeconomic events that no particular individual can control, you know, people make a judgment that the risk is going up as well. And so, you know, if you think about what is a, a, a share price, you know, in a stock market is the discounted value of future earnings. And if the, the future earnings are discounted at a higher rate because interest rates are up, that means it's worthless today. Mm-hmm. And you can see that as you look across the industry in the pre-commercial space. In fact, especially those companies that are pre-pre-commercial, if you will, just starting out, they've all paid the price of having their future discounted very, very aggressively. And that means that, um, you know, in, in the eye of uh, the economist, the technologies are just not worth as much. You know, the return's not going to be there. And in fact, you know, you, you actually have some people saying, well, I'll put my money in the money market and make my 5% a year, as mm-hmm. opposed to taking a chance I will lose everything on some novel thing that, you know, we'll see if it works out or not. And and that's what we're confronting right now. And plus, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the pendulum's swinging a little bit where, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, when money was virtually free, you know, interest rates were almost at zero. Um, there was an abundance of companies that, you know, they could make that math work because yeah. it was discounted almost at zero. And so all of those companies at the same time are looking for ongoing, continuing investments, you know, in this environment that is progressively more demanding. And so, you know, there, there's only so many investor dollars to go around. Uh, prospects, I think, are looked at much more uh, stringently than, you know, a few years ago. And you're seeing the consequences of that. And it's not inherently bad, uh, yeah. but it does make it harder. And one needs to be um, just 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 better at what you do. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you for your advice for uh, new new biotech leader, leaders of new biotechs uh, who are maybe, like you said, pre preclinical, like just just starting out now. Um, one piece of advice might be like, find something else to do for a couple of years until things straighten out. Or, um, or, or don't start something that requires many, many years of progressive insights. I, I think, you know, companies that probably will do well starting now are ones that you know, are shortened the, the path to a drug. Uh, I think investors will always be interested in something that, you know, will give them a return in, in just a few years. And you can see that with some of the companies that have been successful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at Intelia, like what, what have, I mean, can you share any, I guess, experiences uh, in terms of your leadership of the company through this uh, kind of blip, blip elite, uh, 
I don't know if you'd call it a blip on the radar, but through this tough time, yeah, we'll just. It's, yeah, it's beyond a blip, I think. It's, yeah. Is it, I mean, is there, you know, is there anything creative that you've, uh, you've learned or had to do or any lessons that you can kind of share with us around how to manage a company through this? Well, we nev- never take our funding for granted. Um, and we try to be really thoughtful about what are the best place, places to deploy the capital. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's going to be a balance between things that, you know, maybe we're one or two steps away from an insight or those things that are just require more effort. Mm-hmm. So we try to balance that. Um, you know, we try to take an approach with our budgets that, you know, that is uh, tight, you know, and, and make sure that we're getting the most out of our people, um, that we want them to understand that, um, you know, the cliche money doesn't grow on trees that, you know, these are valuable resources that, you know, make it possible to do our work. And so we don't hide that stuff. I mean, we, we talk about it, you know, and I think that helps inspire better planning and thinking and, you know, but, um, I'm always out there thinking about how to continue to keep this company finance. We, we never want to be in a situation where, uh, the runway is so short that uh, there's uncertainty about, you know, will we get to the next step where there's true value creation? Mm-hmm. And uh, where I was, you know, thinking about, you know, think about it as, you know, s- stepping stones going across a brook to get to the other side. We always want to make sure that uh, we have sufficient runway to, you know, step across a few of those stones um, to make progress so that investors understand where we're going and uh, feel uh, confident that you know, we will get to keep the promises that we make. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to the the community aspect, right? Like the biotech hub sort of community, great, greater, you know, the, I guess the it takes a village sort of mentality around Boston and, and, and the Bay Area and Philly and other places like that. Um, <clears throat> I'm always fascinated in this industry since I've been covering it. I've covered a lot of industries in my career and in most of them, you know, I I covered high tech, I covered retail like years and years ago and competition was competition. Like it was, there were very thick walls between you and your competitors. Um, In this space, you would, the, the competition would seemingly be fueled you know, fueled and and just uh, it, it seems like it would be almost violent competition for the rewards of 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 of, of success, right? In the, in this business, and there is like it is it, it can be cutthroat, but at yeah. the same time, I, I've never been in an industry before where that community of like sharing and progress and advance, pre you know pre pre clinical pre commercial obviously has been so collaborative open. You know, it's, I don't, I've, I, you know, it's really hard for me to get my mind around it. I'm that simple person who's like, you know, we're either, (laughs) we're either friends or we're enemies. You know what I mean? Like it's fascinating to me. So like in a, in a community, in a, in a biotech hub community, you know, how do you, I I guess I'm looking for your perception on how you, how you, um, how you, how you, how you, how you put up walls, how you guard yourself. Yeah. How you, how you allow collaborative exchange that fuels advance I'll, I'll, I'll give you something that I, an example of something i thought was extraordinary when i saw so 
as, as we said early on, I worked at Abbott Laboratories for a long time. And in the morning, you would go through a gate with guards and security things. And, you know, and it was a square mile, uh, you know, the headquarters. And yeah, I've been and there. there. Yeah, I've, I've been there. I can picture it. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a special place and we did a lot of great things. But the notion of having some person from a competing company there, it's just like <laughs> you, you would do everything you could to exclude, you know, that from getting into the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, I, uh, I had an experience uh, here where I was in a room uh, talking about some things at Intelia and we got up to lower the shade because next door was a building with other scientists from another company who could just watch the board as we're doing work. And so, I mean, it's almost as if they were in the same room. And that proximity was just mind-blowing for me, you know? Yeah. Um, I'd say what I've found, I'd say it this way. Well, it's certainly true that there are certain... uh, treatments where it's maybe winner take all uh if you cure something and you know it's you 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 set the standard and it's very hard for that standard to be overcome and you're the first one there that would be an example like that there's not many of those um but it's not a a zero-sum game you know in most cases where there's learning that takes place in the broader community that, um, you know, is applicable in so many different ways with so many other uses that there's this this kind of, you know, growing that takes place as people get insights that leads to formation of new companies or collaborations or technologies that need to be shared because nobody can do it all. Uh, particularly in smaller companies, and uh, that's that's what I see. I mean, it's it's I've I've been really impressed by the incessant networking that takes place, where people who have similar positions or roles in companies, I mean, they don't talk about their intellectual property, they don't talk about their key experiment, but they talk about what it is to do their job, things about shared problems and companies, how to make them better, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think that makes the community stronger uh, as opposed to being on an island, trying to figure every single thing out for yourself, uh, not drawing on the experience or wisdom of others, uh, which I would say characterizes my, probably the first 20 years of uh, my experience in in this yeah. industry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just I get this like. Uh... You know, similar similar to the you know the 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 non insiders perception of the way that uh, the work that happens inside the black box and the dramatic expectations, one can easily conjure up this vision of of Boston where you know Dr. John Leonard is uh, nervous on Friday nights because he knows that his scientists are uh, out and about on the town talking with other scientists, right? I mean, you know, you're hanging out in, in, in the, in, in certain areas, like it's a, you know, it's, it's the biotech up. Uh, you, you just get the sense, like, how do you main, at what point do you say, okay, lock it down? You know what I mean? Lock it down. Keep well, it safe. Yeah. On a Friday night, typically I'm really tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're not worried about anything. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> 
I don't know. I guess I would draw a distinction between secrets, trade secrets, intellectual property, mm-hmm. which are zealously guarded and protected uh, versus ways of thinking, ways of working. Uh, that's th- those are different things, but but are but are related. Uh, I, you know, we, we all want to have the patent that says, you know, this antibody or this construct, whatever it is, has unique attributes and is, you know, there's value that's protected, et cetera. There's not sharing of that. Uh, but the how to get there, the ways to do work is something that I think is, is it, it may be not freely flowing, mm-hmm. but it is resident in the community because we're all trying to solve similar problems with different ultimate end uses. And so, I mean, it's, there's conferences every week about some of these things, and it may not be, you know, the most, uh, you know, that morning's news, but it might be for people coming into the space useful information for them to... Uh, bring to their work, et cetera. So that's the that's what I'm talking about. Just the the resident yeah. expertise in the community versus the particular bit of information that relates to, you know, an individual product or you know, a very very unique and, and valuable insight. Yeah, uh, Dr. Leonard, we're getting short on time here, and I want to res- respect your your time. Um, but I, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about what is going on. You know, we we talk about. I, I liked your conversation uh, around cash preservation and the, the the stepping stone analogy is that's, that's a fantastic one. So I'll play off of that. Like what stepping stone are you on at Intelli right now? And what's the next stone you need to skip over to? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a long-term strategy that we're trying to play out in a very deliberate fashion. And we, it is, there's really three parts to it. One is, uh, the, the CRISPR space is ever expanding and, and there's new insights and derivative forms, et cetera. Uh, we want to have what we call toolbox that allows one to edit DNA in whatever is the relevant uh, format for a particular disease state. So we continue to do that, uh, et cetera. But it, it's really the application of that that has the stepping stone approach where, you know, We've tried to take existing technology, apply it in a use case that would give us the confidence that things were behaving that they, the way they were supposed to behave, and then expanding out from that. So the example would be knocking out a gene, our first uh, program, uh, which is TTR amyloidosis, knocking out a gene in the liver. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, well, can you build up a gene in, in, in the liver? And then can you do that uh, outside the liver? How do you extend that to other tissues that are more difficult to, to reach? And we're, we're doing that work now where, you know, it's this, I would say, accretion of, of, of insights where one thing builds on the other. And for those examples where you, you know, can take a cell outside the body, uh, what we've tried to do is take a similar step-by-step approach where, can we make cells that can come from another person and go into a different individual and do that in a way that enables all kinds of different approaches, whether for 
you know, treatment of, of cancer or autoimmune diseases or ultimately regenerative medicine. So one thing le enables the next, but we want to make sure we get the foundation right. Um, excuse me, where, uh, so fr from like a, a clinical perspective, can you give us an update there? Like, where are you on that path? Right. So on that first uh, format, knocking out genes in the liver, we've got a program for TTR amyloidosis, mm -hmm. gives cardiomyopathy and polyneuropathy. Uh, we're now in phase three. And, you know, that is a step before the drug becomes available to patients. And yeah. we have a, another condition, uh, hereditary angioedema, an unusual disease, but one uh, yeah, that's ideal for a CRISPR approach, knocking out a gene in the liver, which will uh, likely be in phase three studies next year as well. So things have progressed. And we're uh, just beginning uh, to treat patients where we build up a gene that's deficient in the liver for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, a pulmonary, if it's a genetic form of emphysema. And that's that stepwise, stepwise format. And in the next, you know, uh, many months, I, I suppose, we'll be in a position to take those same technologies outside the liver into whether it's the brain or muscle or the eye, for example, uh, all that stuff, all, the, all that work is underway. Yeah, very exciting. Super exciting. Um, I, just real quick, one follow-up question on the on the clinical pipeline. You know, I often have conversations with companies that, uh, you know, maybe have a, a, a late-stage candidate and a, and a real early-stage candidate, and they're like, oh, we kind of got some filling to do, right? Like, what, what what's coming behind these two later-stage candidates at Intelia? Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, again, alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is in phase one. Um, okay. We have uh, in the... Uh, Late later stages of of discovery, uh, ophthalmological diseases, um, which you know it's a very delicate genetics that go with that, and we're poised to begin some of our allogeneic ex vivo work, uh, which will go into the clinic and in the immuno oncology uh, setting. So we don't have anything right in phase two after these mm -hmm. uh, you know later stage programs. But uh, those programs are coming quickly. Yeah, very nice. Well, I, I appreciate the time, Dr. Leonard. This has been uh, very insightful. I know we, we we meandered a bit, there's no doubt, which is, that's typical of my line of questioning. You know, we, we, we covered some ground, uh, but valuable ground. I really appreciate your insight and your transparency around, you know, what it's taken at Intelia and your thoughts on what it takes to build a biotech community. So uh, thank you for coming on. It was my honor to have you. And uh, we look forward to paying attention to where Intelia goes from here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So that was Intelia's Dr. John Leonard. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Life Science Connects Bioprocess Online, which offers a trove of peer-generated content for biotech leaders at bioprocessonline.com. If you like listening in to conversations with biotech leaders like Dr. Leonard, Subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast. Sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. And as always, be sure to leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And thanks for listening. <laughs>